0: Could open your Bibles again. This time to Hosea chapter eleven. In the Church Bible, it's page nine zero eight, or in the larger print Bibles, one four one two. Hosea eleven, and we're going to read through to the end of chapter twelve. God says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the beals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebuim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come, trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. But you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of your appointed festivals. I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. Is Gilead wicked? Its people are worthless. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Their altars will be like piles of stones on a plowed field. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife and to pay for her he tended sheep. The Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he cared for him. But Ephraim has aroused his bitter anger. The Lord will leave on him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. This is God's Word. And the way to understand these chapters is to keep in our minds two of the most famous parts of the Bible. The Exodus from Egypt and the story that we read earlier. Jesus' story of the prodigal son. Hosea 11 and 12 bring those two perspectives together. This whole section is about coming out of Egypt. But it's presented to us from the viewpoint of a son coming back to his father. These chapters are a call to return to God. And this call comes with powerful emotion. It comes from the father who says to his rebellious son, How can I give you up? First of all, in this section, we hear about the prodigal son. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 7. Verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. This is referring back about 700 years before Hosea's day. Right back to the time when Israel's, uh, Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, were slaves in Egypt. They'd hardly begun to be a nation. The book of Exodus tells us the Israelites groaned in their slavery And they cried out, and their cry for help went up to God. The Israelites were like a helpless child crying out for help. And the text goes on to tell us, God heard their groaning. He looked on the Israelites, and he knew them. So when Israel cried out, God did not hear dispassionately the way a babysitter might hear the calls of a child. God heard Israel's cries the way a parent does. He knew they were the cries of his own child and they went right to his heart. And when God sent Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, the message God gave to Pharaoh was, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. The whole situation there was charged with the passionate love of a father for his son. And that's what's referred to in the words, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And the following verses describe God's care for Israel after the Exodus. Again, in terms of the love of a father for his son. In verse 3, God says, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. And in verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. When God led Israel, it was not harshly. It was with kindness and love like a father teaching his child to walk, like a father lifting his child to kiss him, bending down to provide what the child couldn't provide for himself. That's a summary of God's behavior towards Israel after the exodus from Egypt. He provided food and drink for Israel in the desert. He gave his law to Israel Showing them how to live wisely and well. How did Israel respond to the love of the father? Israel responded as a prodigal son. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the beals, and they burned incense to images. The more God cared for Israel, the more he called to Israel through his prophets, the more Israel turned from him and rejected his love. Just like in Jesus' story, the prodigal took his father's loving provision that he turned his back on his father to squander that provision. He left his father for a distant country. And here God says to Israel, That will be the outcome for you. Verse 5. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. Actually, there's a play in words which we miss here in the NIV. Repent, in this verse, is the same word translated return earlier in the verse. God says, because Israel refuses to return to me... They will return to Egypt. But you'll notice this verse also says, Assyria will rule over them. How could Assyria rule over them if they're in Egypt? Assyria is north of Israel, Egypt is south. Well, this is something we've seen a few times already in this book, but we haven't stopped to think about it when it's come up before In Hosea, going back to Egypt means going back to slavery. It's a way of saying to Israel, you were delivered from slavery, now you're returning to it. So Israel is not literally going to go back to the land of Egypt. They're going to Assyria. But the point is, they're going back to the way of life God delivered them from. Assyria is the new Egypt. That's the point. And God says, I'm going to let them go there. Just like the father in Jesus' story, let his son go to the distant country. Verse 7. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. Well, does this mean it's over for Israel? If we were talking about a human father, then it might actually be over for Israel. Even the most patient father has his breaking point eventually. If any human father was around to put up with a prodigal for 700 years, maybe they would finally call it a day. And give up on their rebellious son. But we're not talking about a human father here. We're talking about God the Father. And his love surpasses even the greatest human love. When we began looking at this book a few weeks ago, we said, people often talk about what they feel about God. Hosea tells us what God feels about us. And here in verses 8 to 11, we get all the emotion of the Father's love. God has described what is going to happen to Israel. In their refusal to return to God, they will go to their new Egypt. They will be led in chains to Assyria. But as God speaks about that future, He is overwhelmed by love for His stubborn, ungrateful Son. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebuim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come, trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. God is not saying here that the exile in Assyria is not going to happen. He's saying it is not going to be the end. God is not going to walk away. He's not going to give Israel up to complete destruction. That is what happened to the cities of Adma and Zebuim. They were destroyed long before this, along with the Old Testament cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If God were to treat Israel like those cities, it would mean the end of God's plans for the world. Those plans are centered on the Israelites. When God made promises of blessing for the whole world, he made those promises to Abraham, the head of Israel. When God made promises about a king who would reign forever, that king was to come from Israel, from the line of David. So when God says, how can I give you up? Yes, he is talking about Israel, but also about humanity. The only hope for rebellious humanity depends on God's love for rebellious Israel. It is through Israel that blessing will come to the world. And as God looks on prodigal Israel and this prodigal world, he says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. The second statement there explains the first one. My heart is changed does not mean I've changed my mind. It means my emotions are stirred up. Sometimes Christians have struggled with the idea that God has emotions. They're afraid, maybe, it makes God seem just a bit too human. But Don Carson points out that however hesitant we might be about it, the Bible presents us with a God who has a profound emotional life. In fact, back in the book of Exodus, when Moses asked God to show his glory... God began his reply to Moses by describing his emotions. He said, I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And here in Hosea, as God contemplates the exile that is ahead of Israel, he says, all my compassion is aroused. And so, verse 9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. The first part of that verse means, I will not let my anger run its full course. Ephraim, remember that's another name for Israel, Ephraim will be devastated by Assyria. But that devastation will not be repeated. In a moment, God will explain what he does intend for the future. But first notice the second half of verse 9. Here is the reason he cannot give Israel up. Here's the reason, even in the face of such persistent rejection from Israel, God's compassion has aroused. It is not because his love is a reflection of our love. It's because his love burns hotter and reaches further than the greatest human love. God says, I cannot give Israel up for I am God and not a man. Even the greatest human love would have grown cold by now, long before this. Even the strongest parental affection would have waned in the face of such rejection. But God says, my love is not human. I am the holy one. My affection stays the course. And this goes all the way back to those promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God's I will promises. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here in Hosea, God looks at rebellious Israel, his prodigal son who's about to go into exile and God says... I am the Holy One. I stand by my promises. My love does not wither and die. My compassion does not fail. I will not give you up. And God goes on to say, In the future, I will roar like a lion. In other words, the sound of my voice will be heard. It will be unmissable. It will reach every corner of the earth, with power. And my children will respond to my voice. They will come trembling. Not with pride and self-assurance. Not presuming on my acceptance. They will come to me humbled by my grace and my mercy. And they will find their home with me. God the Father's love is a determined love. It's a holy, divinely powerful love. It's a love that overcomes every obstacle in order to keep its promises. And what you and I need more than anything is to know this love of God. Not just to know that it exists, but to appreciate it for ourselves. A writer called John Owen put it like this. The more we see of God's love, so much more shall we delight in him. All that we learn of God will only frighten us away from him if we do not see him as loving and merciful to us. But if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of his nature... It cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by him. So, do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father. And see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water. And you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful you who used to run from God will not now be able, even for a second, to keep any distance from him. All of us are born prodigals. And what you and I need more than anything else is to stop in our wayward tracks and know the love of our Father. We need to turn around in our tracks And return to our father and his love. That's the call that comes next here in Hosea. Prodigals, return to your father. And God makes the point here by focusing in on a well-known prodigal from Israel's history. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob was Abraham's grandson. And the book of Genesis tells us how he deceived his father Isaac, and in doing so, he took the blessing that was meant for his older brother Esau. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 27. And here in Hosea, at the end of chapter 11, God makes the comparison with Israel in Hosea's day. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, God says, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful, holy one. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria. He sends olive oil to Egypt. God pictures himself here standing in the midst of the nation of Israel. And wherever he turns he finds cheating. He finds people who are filled with dishonesty. God alone is faithful to his covenant promises. Those I will commitments. While God is as faithful as ever, Israel is chasing everybody and everything but God. Like a fool trying to catch hold of the wind. And as Israel makes one false promise after another and moves from one new alliance to another, Israel is just piling up lies and violence. And God says what we've heard Him say before, that is the road to destruction. But God says to Israel, stop and think about another deceiver who woke up before it was too late. In verse 2, God mentions Jacob. And then he says in verse 3, In the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty. The Lord is his name. Jacob was tenacious And going after what he wanted. He was born second to his twin Esau. But even in the act of being born. He was wrestling for position. Trying to get the upper hand. When Esau came out of the birth canal. There was Jacob hanging on to his heel. Trying to pull his brother back. And get ahead of him. Even at the very start. And when he grew up. Jacob took that same tenacious approach with God. He struggled with God. He wrestled with the angel of God. And God doesn't say Jacob's tenacity was a bad thing. God says, here's what you need to consider about Jacob. For all of his determination, he came to the point in his life where he wept and begged for my favor." In the end, Jacob the deceiver became a man who was broken before God, pleading for God's grace. And God met him at a place called Bethel. God says to the prodigals of Hosea's day, you are chasing the wind. You're tenacious in going after what you want and what you think will satisfy you. But he says, you need to consider your tenacious ancestor. He allowed his arrogance to be broken. He was willing to be humbled and to seek my grace. And in verse 6, so you. That's probably the better translation than but you. Israel is being called to be like Jacob, not unlike him. So you, God says, must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. Prodigals, return to your father. But as Hosea's audience heard this, they may have been thinking, what's the point? You've been telling us this nation is going to pot. You've told us the Assyrians are going to overrun us. Now you tell us to return to God. You tell us to go against the flow of cheating and deceit that's all around us. You call us to stand out by living lives of love and justice. But what's the point? And maybe it feels that way for us unless we've been hiding in a cave for the last few decades, we'll all have noticed we do not live in a time and place where people are flocking back to God. Those who turn to God are going against a pretty strong cultural current today. Those who live out the Bible's vision of love and justice are not going to have an easy time of it. So what's the point? The point is those who turn to God and live for God have their sights set beyond the present. We are not counting on applause and support from those around us. We are waiting for God. Our hope is not that we're going to find our true home here. We swim against the current because God has promised us an eternal home beyond all this. That's probably the hardest thing for us. To return to God, to live for God and to wait for God. To live for him, surrounded by a world that is not living for him. To commit ourselves to him in faith that his love will never let us go. And that in the end, his love will bring us home to him. But as you and I sense the challenge of that, let's remember, this is what God's people have always been called to. The call to return to God has always been a call to go against the tide of a prodigal world. God's people have always come to him in faith. Faith that's based on his promises and his past record in history. We know his character. He's displayed his character again and again and so we trust him. We wait for him, believing he will do what he has promised to do. And so there's one more thing we need to notice here in this passage. We know that Israel as a whole is not turning back to God. We know the nation is headed for exile. Israel will go to their new Egypt in Assyria. But God wants his faithful people to know there is hope for the future. And in the final verses of chapter 12 he speaks about the new exodus. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12, God again speaks about Ephraim's dishonesty. He speaks about their confidence that they're getting away with it. Ephraim says, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. Their attitude is just like the athlete who's doping, but who's sure he's never going to get caught. But look what God says in verse 9. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festivals. I will make you live in tents again means those who turn to me will experience another exodus. Just like the days when Israel emerged from slavery in Egypt. They became pilgrims at that time. They were on their way to the promised land. And so they lived in tents because they were going somewhere. I was leading them home. And God says, it's going to happen again. And he gives a hint about how it's going to happen. Down in verse 13, the Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he cared for him. That's a little unusual. Why not just say, Moses brought Israel up from Egypt? Why say twice it was a prophet? This is reminding Israel of something God promised way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses was still alive at that time, and he told the Israelites this about God's plans for the future the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And now here, hundreds of years after that promise, God is reminding Israel that after their exile in Assyria, there will be a new exodus led by a new Moses. And when this prophet comes, they must listen to him. This person will be their only hope to get home to God. How was this fulfilled? Well, during the ministry of Jesus Christ, one day Jesus took three of his disciples up on a mountain to pray. And Luke tells us this in his gospel. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The word translated departure there is literally exodus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die and then rise from the dead. That is the exodus he was talking about with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the new Moses. He will lead the new exodus. Not out of slavery in Egypt or Syria, but out of slavery to sin and back to God. And he's going to do it by his death and resurrection at Jerusalem, Luke told us. Well, Peter was one of those with Jesus on the mountain. And he's very excited by what he sees. He starts babbling. And then we're told, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So there on the mountain, God confirms Jesus is the one Moses was talking about all those years ago when he said to Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Jesus is the one we must listen to. And he is a prophet like no other prophet. He is God the Son. He came not only to show us the way, he is the way. Only Jesus can remove our guilt and guide us safely home. The Israel of Hosea's day was doomed. That society came to an end and it was never properly restored. Israel didn't disappear, but its glory days never came back. The nation did not return to God and it paid for its rebellion. But Jesus Christ was an Israelite. He was born from that ruined nation. And he was all that Israel had failed to be. He was full of love and trust for God the Father. He lived in perfect obedience to his Father. Jesus was not a prodigal son. But he died in the place of prodigals like you and me. And since his resurrection, he has been leading a people drawn from every tribe and nation. A people who have returned to their father, who have been forgiven by his grace and who are on their way home to him. That is what God's love has done. And in love he still calls today. Return to me. Stop chasing the wind. Come and experience divine love through faith in Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, living for him, waiting for our new home, you and I need to take the time to set our thoughts on the eternal love of the Father. Because the more we see of God's love, so much more shall we delight in him. So when you're weary of your own sin, when you're weary of a world that turns its back on God, when you're weary of waiting for your home, then stop and remember the love that will not let you go. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful. Our last song gives us an opportunity to do that together. To set our hearts on God's love. We're going to sing together, O oh, love of God, how strong and true.